0: Uh, he didn't recognize the Tui family at first, but then when he was taking details, he said, I know ye. Ye come from a family of murderers." Murderers, he said, I'm not going to baptize this child. So with that, my uncle Mickey came out, He produced of revolver, and he held us the can and said, You will, he says, I'll blow out your
1: brains. Hi, this is Paula Carroll, and you're welcome to the Clare Oral History Podcast. This podcast delves into the archive of the County Clare-based Oral History and Folklore group known as Cuivne van or Clare Memories. We're based in the west of Ireland, and through the oral histories we've gathered here, we'll give you a flavour of the memories, experiences and traditions that characterise this place. Ordinary lives, extraordinary stories, that's the promise. For our first episode, we're going to bring you some of our favourite storytellers in the collection. Not necessarily tellers of folk tales and not long stories, but just people who know how to tell a story. People who know the value of words and who are able to use them well. People who can draw you in, no matter what the topic. Let's listen first to Paddy O'Malley from Fecal in East Clare. He talks about finding a 4,000-year-old collar of gold and other jewellery in a field beside his house in 1948. That gold, now known as the Gertjean Ray Hoard, is in the National Museum in Dublin. This is from a conversation I had with Paddy in 2009.
2: When we were going to school, we went to school to Dlandry up across the field there up on top of the mountain. And we used to meet this old woman. A few fields across from us now. And she was always telling us that there was gold hid between their house and this road up to your house. This man crossed and he had it, and there was robbers after him. And he had it at their house, and he hadn't had it from the cotton above there near your place. So she said it has to be between this and the, the road. And that was only two fields across like. But sure, we paid no heed. And she used to tell us often about it, you know. I mean, I didn't stop her telling us once. But anyway, I had a field there above, and there was a lot of kind of loose stones in it, you know. And I used to be tilling it with horses and a plough. And they used to be hitting them with a the plough. And I made up my mind that I'd take them out of it. And that time, there was stuff called blessed and powder. And you put a hole down the stone, and you put down the powder on it, and there was a leading of a flakes out of it, and you set fire to that. And up the stone and go on there. But anyway, I dug away, and I had nearly an acre of ground dug this time with a spade. Because then the month of where well, I was at it all the winter... But anyway, and I shove one down towards the end of it. And it's 160 yards long, the field. And just stuck down the spade. And up this stuff hopped. Well, I'll never forget where it shone in the sun. To the same now was the foregone motion, DILF, and the two lift him into a little basin, we'll say. All the little pieces was inside in the collar. I lifted one on one side and I came down here to my dinner and I lifted up on the field and then my father was sitting here when I came down and I was telling him about it. And he said, it could be valuable. But he says, if it is, it is only valuable in the National Museum in Dublin. He used to read a lot. It was supposed to be the hoard of a goldsmith. He made it himself. And they wouldn't hands a man hardly, or no machine would make it the same today. It was all beaded the collar around. Bracelets thin they used to put on their cloaks. And there was big, fairly big box in it as well. They used to put on their cloaks. And... Oh, I we tell imagine. you that I'll never forget the word, Sean. Did you often see a chalice shining of a sunny day in the altar? The very same as that. So just we decided where this huge rock was. And she used to tell us that she said that the sun had never shined or the wind had never blown it. There was trees and white tunnels around at that time, but we had them cleared years before that neighbors then got to hear of it like, and we had a dance in the room and a table, and my sister was here at the time, she was bringing out that seed. Well, every one of them looked at her, and they all said, that was grand, but it wasn't go all like. So eventually, Paddy who was the county councillor, heard of it. And after about a week, he came here one evening. And my sister brought it out to him. Straight away, he knew. He says, you were you born under a low he says. That's the colour of gold, he said. So uh, what we'll do with that now, he says, we'll bring it over to the barricade vehicle. That's treasure trove, he says. That's not your property, he says. That belongs to the state. Well, my father had told me the same thing.
1: You can tell here that Paddy Malley was making it clear that he did not need to be told by the county councillor that this gold hoard should be given to the National Museum. Paddy knew that, and that's exactly what he did. And then he received a finder's reward.
2: But eventually, that sent me 300 quid in a check that time. And that was the same as if we've got 20,000 now. Wanted a lot of money that time. Should buy a good bullet that time for ten quid. But I sure people would to say to me, then you were foolish to give them. Why did you give us some? And what should I do to this? Which was so for me. What did they want it for like? Yeah, I'm sure. I don't know you have to listen to all them things. But then I found out there was a man above near believe hundred found a collar in 1937. And I said, thank went up one wanted to talk to him. And that's even a better colour than mine. Is it? It's above in the main hall, knuckle sheen find. Mm. And I found out from him that it was a hundred pounds he got from it, <laughs> So I was satisfied then. Yeah. You did better. I did. <laughs> yeah, with the times it got better, like 37 and 48. But were it's strange? That, that old woman kept telling, telling us about that.
1: And she said that that was. Uh, wh- when did her story happen? Like to- But
2: sure, uh, it should be handed down to this was. My point was 2000 before Christ came out. It was in being. 2000 BC. But she must have heard it from her mother or her father, and he from his father and back along.
1: And you reckon that story came down those 2,000 years? I do. Well, it
2: it must have been, sure.
1: And that is an amazing thing to contemplate in this story. For how long had that story about the gold been around that part of faecal? Is the story as old as the gold itself? That would be 4,000 years. It's a bit mind-blowing to think about that, but it certainly had been passed down for many, many generations. And with the germ of truth in it intact all that time. And then that truth proven in 1948 when Paddy found the Gertjean Ray Gold Hoard. And that is the power of oral storytelling. The next time you're in the National Museum in Dublin, go look for it. Now to stories of the possible supernatural origins of music. All over rural Ireland, you can find ring forts today. They're supposed to be the remains of ancient dwellings. But if you play traditional music in Ireland, you'll probably have heard stories about people getting tunes from the fairies and about strange musical events that can happen in a ring fort or a fairy fort or a liss, as they're sometimes called. This next piece is from concertina player Chris Droney from Bell Harbour in North Clare. He told collector Carmel Green what happened to him one night when he desperately wanted to learn a tune called Music in the Glen.
3: I remember one night they were playing this tune. You probably know it, Music in the Glen. And Mm. I didn't know it, but they were playing this music in the Glen and I I thought it was lovely. Oh, yes, before that, my, my parents decided they'd buy an old care. There weren't too many cares around that time now, but they buy an old care. So they got a, a hillman care, an old hillman. That oh, was dreadful going wrong. But I used to, I used to bring the lads, the three lads, into Kinvara in the care to play at the hall. And um, this night they were playing the, as I told you, the music in the clean and the glean and. Well, I, I, I was humming it all night and thinking of it in the hall and coming home. But when I was dropping off the last man, he was Michael and Anne up the road here. I was dropping him off and I said, look, before, this, this was about one o'clock in the, in the morning. And I said, before you're going home now, I said, we'll play music in Digglin. I have to play it before I go home again. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't, he couldn't play it. The fiddle inside in the care. So it was a lovely moonlight night and we set out in the wall right outside his house and we started playing music in the glen. We must have played it about ten times and we'd stop and talk for a few minutes and we'd start off again playing music in the glen. I wanted to have this tune <laughs> But right up from right up from where he lived there was a a fort
2: mm.
3: to the a they used to call them. Did you ever hear the list? Yeah. Of Elise? yeah. Elise. But it was a, uh, I don't know whether it was a fairy fort or what, but uh, it was a lease anyway. But uh, it was only about four or five hundred chairs from where he lived. And there was a man in a village at the far side of the fort, and he, he had a clock set to get up to go and see a cow that was due to calf. Mm. So when the clock rang, he went off to walk up the hill to where the cows where well, they were up near the fort and when he got up near the fort this came summer's night didn't he hear the music he heard music in the glen and he listened for a while and I heard after that the lights of the way he went home he ran at home he nearly killed himself running home nothing can make him believe but it <laughs> was inside the, the, <laughs> the list <laughs> that was inside in the list the music was but we knew nothing. We were playing below. We, we knew nothing. But after that, two days after, the whole parish had it. About the music that was up in the list Sunday night. Sunday, Ma- Monday morning, at one o'clock in the morning. And was all about this, the music that was up in the list above, in the middle of the night. And the whole parish had it. Well, I would, as soon as I heard it, I went up to Michael and then, and I told him, I said, Listen, for the for the life, you, I said... Don't open your mouth. Don't say to those. <laughs> tell
2: anyone. And see. from
3: that day to the day, people, people think that isn't the least, the music was that night. <laughs> that, that's what it was music in the Glen. I'll never forget it.
1: Oh, there's such a great sense of fun and devilment there from Chris Droney. Now to a completely different kind of story. This next one is from Teresa Flynn. She was born Teresa Dooley in Mount Shannon and as a young midwife she emigrated to Chicago for a time in the 1950s. Here she tells collector Francis Madigan a story about endemic racism at the private Catholic hospital where she worked and about the Irish nun who was having none of it.
4: We were going to work in our uniforms to go on at uh, 11 o'clock I'd say until 8, that was the night shift and what happens but this car pulls up and they said girls and we stood and looked and just women were in the car you don't realise how dangerous this is and she looked at me and said honey there was a nurse killed going home from Little Company two weeks ago murdered (laughs) I thought that's all we want We got into the back of the car anyway and they left us off at the little company of Mary. And we went. I went to the eighth floor. Peggy was on three. And uh, my job was... The mothers came up to the eighth floor, the darlings, to be delivered. I had them for three hours in recovery. And I then took them... Down to in the elevator to room to floor seven. That's where they were. That was it. So I'm waiting patiently anyway. And the elevator doors open. And I had worked in England, of course. I'd worked with black people, naturally enough. They were the very same as ourselves, and there was certainly no problem. So the elevator doors open. And I see two big burly policemen with a little black woman in a wheelchair. Oh, God, I said, she's ready for delivery. I rushed to open the double doors to let them through quickly. And the nurse inside said, I'm not touching her. So I said, uh, OK, come out and do my job and I'll do it. I'm a midwife, I'll deliver her. She wasn't, legally, that was not possible. So the, a few minutes elapsed and she the doors open, and she pushed her out on the cat, they called them, we called them trolleys. She said, she's all yours with the look of total disgust on her face. So uh, I greeted my little angel anyway and I had her in recovery room. You checked her for blood pressure and bleeding and everything every half hour for three hours. And coming down to the elevator to bring her down to her room, We had to pass the nursery, and every time we did that, uh, the nurse inside showed the mother the little infant. So the lady inside, from Galway, she looked as much as she wasn't lifting this little baby to show the mother. I said, come out here, I'll go in. So reluctantly, with a long face, she showed to the mother this beautiful little baby, so down I go to where my two friends were working on the seventh floor and they knew it had gone through the whole place. We had a black woman in the hospital. Now this is a Catholic hospital where they were going round with candles and bells every morning with Holy Communion. And uh, I opened the door and I just said, uh, girls, just give me the room number. I knew, I knew. And they said, oh, she has to have a private room. Nobody would share with her. So I said, well, actually, I'm looking for the best. They never again talked to me. But anyway, I took her down to her room. And, of course, legally, I couldn't get her from the trolley to the bed. There had to be two people. So the nurse's aide came down reluctantly and held the cat, as they call it, while well, I got her into bed. So I said to the, her, then, you can go now. I'll get her wherever she wants. I'll never forget an ivory phone on the bedside crystal jug which I filled with water and got her, her crystal glass and filled it up for her and she said you're awful nice to me honey I said why would I not be you're American I'm a foreigner here and uh, I said what's more enjoy it I came on next night she'd been removed to Cook County as to a p- different hospital the black below where the rats were running round. Beside the river in Chicago. She was moved straight away. Now, I'm talking, as I say, about it profoundly religious. But that night, I must give it to the nun. No, in fairness to her. She came up because the nurse was not wanting to touch her. And the doctor, who was Greek... The hadn't commanded the language, even. he wasn't going to touch her either. So she came up, and we were great old pals. And if they called you by your son, and you were a friend, she said, Julie, would you ever pray for me that I don't commit murder? <laughs> I was elated. I said, Sister, if so she stop, was
5: thinking on the same lines as yourself? Yes.
4: I said, Look, Caroline, if you are held, I'll come with you. We'll both to it together. So, as I say, in she went and stripped the two, especially the Greek lad that couldn't speak English. And, uh, as I say, she was pushed out with such a look of disgust on her face. (coughs) She's all yours. But no black person had ever entered the portals of the little company of Mary in Chicago until that night. And she, that wouldn't have happened, only the police wouldn't have been able to deliver her. But the apologies I got, it made me angry. And as I say, the priest came every morning off the elevator, a nun ringing a bell and a nun with a candle, bringing communion to all, because the were all Catholic. And thank God for that nun, whoever she was, that said to me, say a prayer duly that I don't commit murder because she was not having it, and I'll never forget her for it.
1: Teresa Flynn has many more stories in the Cuevna Van archive, all told with equal drama and precision. We may indeed dedicate an entire episode to her at some stage. This next one is another story to do with health and hospitals, but this time it's the detail of the recall that arrests you. A very young child loses his mother to TB and recalls the trauma of it many years later as an adult. Patrick Flanagan was born in 1935 in Luwock and Doolan, but now lives in Coventry. Here he tells collector Francis Madigan the story of how his and his siblings' lives were devastated by the death of a beloved mother.
4: Did she talk about her life? I know you were quite young when she died, but no, did she talk about her life? No, I
6: have got one photograph of my mom. that was taken in Chicago. I got it in my bedroom at home. That's all the photographs we have of her. Um, she went into the sanatorium, and she came out after some time. Now I don't know exactly which time, but it was a considerable time. And I remember, the, I remember the day she came out very well. And three was. She was in bed, I think probably maybe not well enough to be up. and three was piled into the bed with her. And Dad came in, and he went absolutely berserk, obviously, worrying what was, you know, in case we could we cut TB. We never realised it, but, you know. And I thought she didn't have the heart to, to send us packing. Um, but I remember being so protective of her.
2: It was a sad time for all of you, you know...
6: Doing jobs, you know. Make sure I fit the cows and, But we did everything that time, we did.
4: Did she stay at home? She
6: stayed you? at home then for a bit. I don't know how long. Then she went into the sanatorium again.
4: Yes.
6: And died. And we had about her death. <laughs> Dad was at home obviously waiting for it. Uh, waiting for the news. And somebody travelling from the mine in Doolan, He was going net He was on his way down to to Carball on his way back from work. And he came into our house. And he sat by the dresser. And he had his cap and he was crunching his tap up. And he said, I'm afraid I, he asked first how Mum was. asked dad. And he said, I'm afraid I have some bad news, she just died. There were no phones at the time and they telephoned or telegrammed or whatever they did to the barrack and the hospital and uh, that's how we got the news. She died by herself on her own. Dad just got her in this to see her in hospital in a borrowed bike. It's about twenty-two miles. We were at home on our own. Granddad was with us. even left the time, but now don't forget the roads. There was a half a mile, a mile maybe, of the road was tarmacked from the hospital in Insterham. After that, it was rough country roads, stone roads. He cycling bikes. There was nothing in his three-speed gear, and he borrowed bike. His own bike wouldn't be good. One good enough, one very good, and he was cycled. So that was the best part of fifty miles. Those roads. And there was no cafes, there was nothing. You might get a, a drinking iron on the way down or the way up. But it was, it was you know, horrendous. She guided her out there. Of course, I remember it all. I remember, but I do remember. We went down to the mark. A number of neighbours, there was an old lady, Nora Beg, we used to call her, she was flat, Nora Fatty, we called her Nora Beg. And um, she lifted me up and she said, Paddy, kiss your mother goodbye. She was so cold. You know, I, I am involved with in that now with corpses and burials, this things things I do as a deacon. And sometimes I bless the corpse maybe touch them with the in-depth coldness, the in depth coldness of death. It never left me. I go back to that day in this. She seemed very high up, but she probably wasn't, but I was just small. the graveyard, she was buried the next name. I was almost on aside the grave. My brother was the other Michael, he was two years younger. He was very, very small. And then we had planned that we wouldn't cry. Because big, big people didn't cry. We didn't cry either. just looked at each other across the grave. And that was that. went home and uh, got home with life, really. But was, you never, you know, it's the most odd thing to happen to kids. We always felt second grade, second class. Felt dirty, I suppose, really.
1: It's hard to know how to follow that story, except to say that Patrick Flanagan did go on to have a good life. He emigrated to Coventry at age 16 and lives there now with his family. We switch theme now and go to two stories which both relate to the revolutionary period in Ireland between 1916 and 1921. The first is from Madeleine Colleen from Ennis in conversation with collector Linda Quinn. Madeline's father had joined the British Army and fought in World War One. When he returned home in 1918, it was to a changed Ireland. And in certain quarters, there was no welcome for anyone who had fought with the British. He told Madeline what happened to him one day when he walked into a group of common amon women. Then
5: my father went away, you so see, he ran away. Yes. He ran away and joined the British Army Right. and he was only 16 and a half or something. So he kind of got out of town. So he got out and he went up to Belfast and there, he thought, he used to tell me, oh my God, he said, I went into the recruiting office, he said, and they marched us from one end of Limerick to the other, right through the main street, he said. And he said, I knew my Aunt Bridgie and Mary, they used to go into Limerick for different things for the business, you know. Yeah. And I, I kept my head down, he said, because I said, someone from Innesia will see me now. He never told them, you know? Ever? So no, quite, of course, eventually. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And he said, someone now is going to spot me from minutes, And he kept the head down all the time. Was <laughs> was every kind of a man you could think of, from the poorest to the poor, to the ragamuffin, to the runaways, and to every kind of a person. Yes. Yeah. And they ended up in Belfast, so they did some training, and he was in the Irish Rifles. And he was sent out into France. And he was fighting in the battle of the Somme. Yeah. In the trenches. Right. And he got wounded with chapner in yeah. the leg. And they took him back anyway and he was in hospital. And then he did convalescing in France, sometimes in a farm. Well it was a different experience, wasn't it? And then he went back again today. he was sent back again, but this time he went back in transport and they taught him to drive. Yeah. And he was driving supplies to the front. Which was dangerous enough too. You see bells were coming along in bombs. And he saw out the war then and then he came back to Venice. Of course, it was terrible. Uh, and he must have had a pension from that then, did he? No, never no had a pension. No, not. No, no. no. But he, he's, he saw a different side of life, I said. But when he came home then, you see, there was a terrible animosity towards these people that were in the British Army. Yeah. By the... Like Covering a man and all, all these yeah. people, you yeah. know? Yeah. And he told me a story that they were going up the street one day himself and this other fella who was also home from the war. And up there, near where... The old ground now have the restaurant there, what do they call it? The, the, the town hall. Yeah, the town yeah. hall. Yeah. Turning the corner there at the street, they spotted about 40 of these women coming down towards them. They had pitchforks, sticks, every kind of an implement, he said. And they were charging up the street, and they put their eyes on the two, and they knew they were from, had been over. In, in the British Army, yeah, and they charged down the street after them shouting and screaming. And when they got to the square, they separated the two men.
4: Yeah,
5: and one went, one went, and they went their own way. Of course, they didn't catch up with them. Yeah. But he said, "If they had," he said, "I don't know where we'd be." So the so the so the women were oh, deadly. Like, animosity down. in every direction. Yeah, yeah. just the women, everything So, so what, what? age was he <coughs> when he came back from the war? Well, I suppose he must have been gone about four or five years, I see. Yeah, four anyway, I suppose. I
1: see. A lucky escape there for Madeline Colleen's father. Our last story comes from Joe Toohy from Clonusker and Scarif in conversation with Tara Sparling. Joe's father, Thomas, or Tom Toohy, was commandant of the East Clare Brigade of the IRA during the War of Independence. Joe's story about his father also contains a lucky escape, this time aided by the clergy. And he then goes on to tell another extraordinary story about an encounter with a clergyman of different political views.
0: My father was Thomas Tewhaid. He was well known as Tomo. Now, he um, happened to be a combatant of the East Clare Brigade, Old IRA. He was featured very well in um, that book that was written, Blood and the Banner. And uh, uh, there were a lot of incidents in that happened to my father that weren't mentioned in the book. But my father told me, and of course, they were quite horrendous, actually. And uh, I don't know that it's appropriate at this stage to say what happened to him. Uh, we all know about four boys from the Scarif area who were beaten to death. And there's a plaque on the bridge in Killaloo between Killaloo and Bellana. Um, Each time I pass it, I say a prayer for them and I stop. But um, at the day they were arrested, my father and his brother, uh, he had two brothers as well that were involved in that struggle, uh, Mick and Paddy. And Mick and my father were at a funeral in Scarif. Now, they always had, they were marked men and they had their touts in the town. that They saw the black and tans arriving. But it so happened that um, uh, during the funeral service, uh, their informer came in and told them, the tans are in town, they're looking for you, they know you're in town. So with that, they went up to the gallery in the church's garden. And they went up into, there was an attic door. And they made their way up into the attic. And the tans came in, searched the church, interfered with the ceremony, went upstairs and they saw this door. And my father and his brother were standing on the door and they uh, they tried to break it open with their bayonets. And all (coughs) my father could hear was, the efforts are gone. And they stayed there until the funeral service was over. The priest called them down, brought them in next door into the presbytery. They rigged them up with a black, some couple of black garments and a white collar each, and they went down, and they were part of the funeral cartage, and they made their escape. But uh, there were a lot of other incidents. Uh, There was also a great one about that particular time as well. Uh, The last of my father's family was a little girl, and she was to be baptised. And again, the three brothers got word to the christening was going to be in Fetal and uh, they uh, they made their way home, but they stayed in a safe house the night before, and they made their way to Feetal for the christening on the Sunday, and uh, my grandfather and grandmother, and I think some of my aunts were there as well, and the three boys were there, but to hide, they, <coughs> not to be so obvious, they, each of them took up a confessional, they went into a confessional to hide in it. And the canon who was there at the time, he wasn't very pro the movement. he was anti of anything. And uh, he came out. Uh, he didn't recognize the Tui family at first, but then when he was taking details, he said, "I know ye. ye come from a family of murderers. murderers, he said, "I'm not going to baptize this child." So with that, my uncle Mick came out, the producer of Al. And he held us the can and said, you're I'll blow out your brains. My aunt could tell me years afterwards, I didn't know anything about this until she told me. She was a nurse and she, one way or another, she found herself in South Africa. And she married a doctor, she, she married um, a doctor there who was a, f- a friend of Bernard who did the first heart transplant. So she was home on holidays and so also were two other aunts and then my uncle Mick. So one night anyway, uh, the two aunts and my uncle Mick had gone to bed and my aunt Nan and I were having a couple of drinks. So she told me this thing. When she was getting married, she had to write back for her letter of freedom. And she got it written and it was, baptised under duress. Well, anyway, she got married. That was on her baptism, that was on her certificate, baptism. certificate from the time. So, yeah. so that's uh, just briefly some of the stories.
1: That's it for this episode of the Clare Oral History Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. This podcast has been made possible by support from the Heritage Council through their Community Heritage Grant Scheme. It's produced by me, Paula Carroll, with audio editing assistance from Dara Purcell. If you like these stories, please subscribe to the podcast, or better still, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get found. For more information on Cúibhna Fónclar, check us out on Facebook at Clare Memory, that's the singular, or email us at info at